Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time we've already had together. And as we open up your word, uh, may you speak clearly to us, instructing us, Lord. May your Holy Spirit make clear to us what we must know. Lord, we pray for Leland and others who are not feeling well this morning. Would you please lift them up, Lord, and bring them back to full health, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we're uh, continuing our study in the Gospel of Luke. We're in chapter 7 this morning, and we're going to pick up where we were last week moving forward. Uh, Before we get into this text, though, I want to give you some main thoughts for you note-takers. Our big idea uh, for this message is that John was among the greatest of prophets, but the believer today is greater than John. Isn't that interesting? So, we'll get into that in a bit. And three kind of thoughts and sub-thoughts that, we, that I came up with as I was looking at the passage is that the people's response to John the Baptist and to Jesus uh, teach us or show us that we must be careful to, number one, accept God's word. Uh, we need to accept it when it's hard to receive, and we need to rest, uh, accept it when it's graciously given as well. Uh, Number two, we want to realize that God uses many teachers who have different personalities and even different focuses in their ministries, and God has used them and appointed them to certain things, and so we should be willing to listen to people who are of different flavors, so to speak. Number three, we need to avoid being selective about our teachers so much so that we miss out on what God has for us. So I'm going to read the passage. We're actually focusing on verse 24 and on, but I want to go back to last week's as well just to complete the context of what we discussed in case you weren't here last week and you can find that message on the website if you would like to go back and listen to it. Uh, But starting in verse 18, Luke writes, The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many whom were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard, The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. 
Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children, sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. So last week, again, we discussed the first part of this where John sent the, uh, his own disciples to Jesus to ask that question. Are you the one or are we supposed to look for another one? And, uh, and we talked about that last week. But this week we want to just focus on uh, verse 24 and after. So this is after the messengers had gone. So going back to verse 24, when John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? So there's something to note here that Jesus waited until John's disciples went away before he started talking about John. And there's been many uh, who have contemplated on the reason for this, um, but Jesus wanted to make sure that he said some words about John the Baptist. Perhaps the people that were around him at the time heard these disciples coming and asking him and indicating that maybe John is having a crisis of faith. Maybe he doesn't really think that Jesus is the Messiah anymore. Maybe he's unsure. And so perhaps Jesus was concerned that they were going to say, well, John's lost his faith or he's been weakened because he's in prison. And so he answers this by giving these statements. He asks these rhetorical questions. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? Well, they didn't go out in the wilderness to see John because he was just some run-of-a-mill guy or even just because he was an, uh, an oddity of sorts. They, they went because they decided a trip out into the wilderness at their own kind of uh, discomfort, perhaps, or going out away from their own homes, was worth it to go out to see. There was something about John and his ministry that attracted people to go to make an effort to go see him. They weren't waiting for the parade to pass outside their front of their house so they could look out and say, oh, there he is, and then go back in the house. They went out of their houses. They went out to see him. So Jesus is reminding them of this. He's saying, you remember that you went out to see John. There was something about John that drove you out there. And then he says, uh, a reed shaken by the wind. Well, there's two things about a reed. One is, they're very common. Someone wouldn't have to go very far to see a reed. So that would be a, not something to go worth seeing. But what I think Jesus is really talking about here is what does a reed do in the wind? It just lays down flat or it will flop back and forth. And Jesus is saying that John is nothing like that. He's not a reed shaken by the wind. He was unbending in his declaration of truth and his call to repentance. 
He was an oak of righteousness, right? So, in fact, we talked about last week a little bit. That's why he was in prison. He, he said to Herod, he preached, he preached against the king. That's pretty gutsy. I don't know that I would do that. But, you know, just look the king right in the face and say, here's where you're wrong. This evil, this evil, whatever. And John did that. And that's why he was put in prison. Jesus is reminding them, this isn't some wimpy guy that you were talking about here. This is John the Baptist, the guy you went out to see, the guy that was an unbending, stout oak of righteousness who called all of you to righteousness. Jesus is reminding them. Verse 25 then, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those are, who are uh, dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. So, this soft clothing, the, in the Greek, the, the word that's used there means something like soft to the touch, right? You ever said, touch someone's shirt by, oh, that's a soft shirt, oh, that's nice, you know? And, and it's, it's kind of a word that indicates this is expensive clothing, this is something that the average person wouldn't get to have. It would also possibly indicate that that's a coddled person, right? They can't take the rough fabric. They need something really soft because they're in king's courts, right? And what did John wear? Camel's hair, a leather belt. And, uh, and he was in the wilderness. He certainly wasn't in a king's court, right? Um, and from the wilderness, where did he go? Into the prison. So... Verse 26 then, what, did, what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. So Jesus is affirming John the Baptist is a prophet, and he's indicated this in other places in the Gospels too. This isn't the only place. But he was not an ordinary prophet. In fact, he's about to tell which prophet he is according to Scripture because a prophet in Scripture predicted a prophet that would come, and that was John, and, and that was Malachi, and we're going to get into that in a second. But he was not an ordinary prophet. He was the last of the true Old Testament prophets, and his ministry was a much more immediate pointing forward than the, the prophets that were before him. So Jesus quotes Scripture here in verse 27 and says, This is a, he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Okay, so Jesus is citing here from Malachi chapter 3. And this is the prophetic text that pointed to the Messiah, but in this specific case, he pointed to the forerunner to the Messiah, the one who would go right before the Messiah to prepare the way. And here's what Malachi 3, 1 through 5 says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. 
He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So God had given to Malachi the prophet a prophecy about another prophet who was going to come, and that was John the Baptist. And remember the key thing that John did, other than preparing the way towards Jesus, of course he was doing that, but how did he do that? Was he called people to righteousness. He called people to repentance. He baptized them in repentance. It was a sign for someone who got baptized by John of their repentance, their desire to turn from their evil ways, a desire to be cleansed. And this was John's main ministry. He cried out to people, called them to righteousness, and he was very strong in that message. And we'll talk about in a bit how strong he was that that did not make certain people happy, but it did make the ones who submitted to his baptism uh, very happy because they were they were able to uh, stand in righteousness because of their humble act of being baptized. Next, in verse 28, uh, Jesus says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now that sounds like a confusing statement at first, doesn't it? There's none greater than John. By the way, he's not saying necessarily that John is the greatest. He's saying there's none greater. So as far as prophets go, John's in the top tier. Um, Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God can be greater than he. Well, that that does seem a little confusing at first. Um, How could any of us who are the least in the kingdom of God or towards the least, maybe, were greater than John the Baptist? That doesn't sound right. Um, well, let's try to understand this. He is, first of all, speaking about prophets. Regarding prophets, none is greater than John. As I mentioned earlier, he's really the last Old Testament prophet. And he's greater because the other prophets told of something that was still far off. The last prophet, before we get to the New Testament, was there was a 400-year break between God speaking through prophets. So they all spoke of something that was still very future, very far in the future, at least a few hundred years in the future. Um, And John, he's speaking of something that's right here, right now. And so he's greater for that reason, too. And yet the least today is greater because Jesus' kingdom is already here. So we can stand as people of God's kingdom and say we are greater than John, not in status of as far as what the Lord is going to give us a crown for in heaven or, or what we've done for the Lord or anything like that, but in the sense that John died before he saw the fullness of his prophecies come through. True, 
but we actually get to live right in it. Because Jesus said his kingdom is here now. When he, was, when he came, he said, the kingdom of God is near. And we actually get to experience that right now. And so Jesus is pointing this out. And next, uh, verses 29 and 30. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. All right, so the people who had accepted John's message declared God to be just when, John, when Jesus said this about John. Remember what John's baptism was, baptism of repentance. And what does repentance require? One of the things that repentance requires, well, there's several things. A realization that you need to repent is important. But also, humility. A person that says, I need to admit that I am a sinful person. And that's part of what repentance is as well. It's agreement with God. And God has assessed in Scripture that all None are righteous, not one. All have fallen short. And all our hearts are wicked. And so repentance is humility before God, but it's also agreement with God in his assessment about our sinful state. So the people who had accepted John's message, we can assume then those are the ones that went to him in the wilderness and went to be baptized by him or his disciples because he had disciples that helped him. Um, Kind of like Jesus' apostles, in a sense, John had people that were uh, kind of his co-ministers in that sense. So the ones that accepted his message declared, God is just. But the Pharisees and lawyers, they rejected God's purpose for themselves. They refused John's baptism of repentance. They actually thought that they could do good works to earn righteousness or earn salvation. Um, those, who reject for the, those who reject repentance for themselves, by the way, are usually hostile to those who do. You may have noticed this. I've noticed it for certain. Uh, people that reject repentance and say, I don't need it, are usually hostile to those who do. And then in verses 31 to 32, Jesus says, What then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not sing. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. All right, so what is he talking about here? This is it's sort of interesting to me anyway, but uh, let me give an example. Maybe someone here grew up with a parent that went to flea markets and set up a booth or went to the state fair and set up a booth to try to sell something. And the kids go along, and during the day, what do they do? They go run around and play with other kids if they can find them, right? And uh, this would have been the marketplace in those days. A parent would probably have to drag their kids along and sit at their booth and try to sell stuff during the day. And the kids are like, hey, go take care of yourself, go play, do whatever. And so the kids would be uh, playing different games, just like we all did. We played make-believe. Whatever we see the adults doing when we're kids, we 
tend to try to do that, right? So what do you play? You play life, really, uh, life events, and you try to imitate or act them out. So uh, in this case, they tried to play the wedding game. Oh, let's, let's have a wedding game. Okay, I'm playing the flute. Aren't you going to sing? Aren't you going to join the game? No, I don't want to play wedding. Okay, so now let's try to play funeral. We'll sing a dirge, and you, you weep. I'll be the singer of, of the dirge, and you be the weep. Back in those days, they had professional mourners that would show up and wail um, to make sure that everybody understood that there was a funeral going on. And, and now we've got kids saying, no, I'm not playing funeral either. Well, Jesus is about to apply this to how people reacted to John the Baptist and Jesus. They're like children who won't play this game and won't play that game. I don't like this one because I don't want to play X, Y, Z part, and I don't like this one because of this. And Jesus is now going to apply this idea of kids playing make-believe uh, to what, how the people received himself and John the Baptist. So, Verse 33 and 34, John the Baptist came, I'm sorry, for John the Baptist has come, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So they saw John the Baptist, and he certainly was unorthodox, right? He dressed strangely. We already talked about that. He didn't eat bread. What was his diet? Ugh. Locusts and honey. Now, I've never tried it, so maybe I shouldn't knock it, but um, I'm not really into eating bugs. I don't think I've ever had them. But he certainly was unorthodox in his dress and his, his uh, eating habits. He didn't drink alcohol. Uh, and so people saw this weird guy in their mind, out in the wilderness, eating bugs, eating honey, dressing with this really rough clothing, and they made fun and said, what? He must have a demon. So they didn't like that. It didn't fit what they thought should be the profile for whatever they thought he was supposed to be. So they said, I'm not playing that game. And then Jesus came. Now he did things differently than John. He ate with people. He provided wine at a wedding party. He was okay leaning back at the table and enjoying life with people. And so he was called a drunken and a glutton and a friend of sinners. So I'm not going to play the John the Baptist game. I'm not going to play the Jesus game either. He's, John the Baptist is too weird. He's out there. Jesus is too common. He's up here. Uh, John the Baptist is too harsh in his teaching. Jesus is too gentle, on and on and on. The comparison is then like, that like those children who refuse to play, no matter what the game is, many refuse the word of God. Whether it came from the ascetic, John, that means a person who lived in a rough, uh, difficult manner, sort of, or whether it came from Jesus, who was full of grace and truth, it didn't matter. The common denominator was that was the truth. And the common denominator was calling people to righteousness. But they didn't want to play either. And then in verse 35, it says, yet wisdom is justified by all her children. So let's go back to that big idea again. Jesus, or John was among the greatest of prophets, and the believer today is greater than John. 
Let's take that the right way and understand what that means. What's greater is the kingdom that we're celebrating and in right now. But don't take it to mean that somehow your merit and status in God's kingdom of what you've done for Jesus is above John the Baptist. Um, probably, certainly not for me. Maybe, maybe you could claim that. I certainly can't. Um, but we want to remember that we have a very significant and wonderful participation in God's kingdom so that we can say that in that sense at least that we're in the kingdom now and John the Baptist was still looking forward to it. And then let's look at those points again real quickly here. The people's response to John the Baptist and Jesus shows us that we must be careful to accept God's word when it is hard to receive and when it is graciously given. So if you're like me, you might listen to more sermons than just Sunday morning. You've got your favorites, perhaps. I, I listen to, whether they're on podcasts or phone apps or whatever, I listen to a lot of preachers and I enjoy that. Some of their messages, though, are hard to receive because they challenge me to, say, to change myself. They challenge me to get out of a comfort zone or they flat out point out sin in my life. Those are hard to receive, but I still need to accept them. I need to receive that. And some messages come like a beautiful psalm that just comforts. And you feel the graciousness of God. And you feel his love. And we need to receive those as well. You know, there's some people that receive the harder ones better because they're hard on themselves more. And, there's, and they have a difficult time receiving the grace. And there's people on the other side who have loved to receive the grace and do not like to receive the hard message. We need to be well-rounded and be able to receive both hard messages and those that are graciously given as well. And we need to realize that God uses many teachers who have different personalities and focuses. And what better contrast do we have than between John the Baptist and everything he did from style to tone to everything compared to Jesus, although Jesus certainly did have times where he was really strong in his message. But generally speaking, they were very different in their style. And today we have... All kinds of ministers out there with different styles. There are some that are more academic, and there's people that are attracted to that more academic. There's more, some that are more metaphorical, and they use all kinds of stories and illustrations, and their sermons are, are full of, of ways to, uh, to relate it to people. There's some that are much heavier on the application. Well, now here's what you need to do with God's word. And what we need to appreciate is that God has given all of them to us. He's given us people who have maybe a dramatic flair to tell a story that fits the sermon and helps us to understand it. And he's given people who are more academic, who can really lay out for us, here's why the scripture adds up to mean this, and you can take and compare other scriptures, and here's how we really go through carefully there's some that are better uh, teachers than they are preachers, and there's some that are better preachers than they are teachers, and there's all kinds of different styles and ways that preachers and teachers and people in ministry 
present God's word. And we need to realize that when someone has a personality, God created them that way. When someone has a particular style, it may just be the way that God gave it to them. Or it's also, it's like the nature-nurture thing, right? You know, they might have grown up with a certain style, and that's what they're kind of used to, and so they emulate that. But we have to realize, I've had times, I'll confess this, because I have a certain way I think things ought to be preached or whatever, and you have times where you're listening to someone else, you're like, I would have preached that differently, I would have said this, I would have said that. And I need sometimes the Lord to knock me upside the head and say, hey, forget it. It's not about how you would have preached it. Learn what you can from this guy. And then you suddenly find that, that we have a great opportunity here to learn something. So celebrate that. It'd be pretty boring anyway if every preacher sounded exactly the same and uh, did, the, did everything in the same way. And so that leads us into number three, which goes along with number two, is that we need to avoid being so selective about our teachers that we miss out what God has for us. And in this case, I might step on some toes here, but I'm okay with that. I, I've known many people that um, they, they, they're hopping from church to church to church to church all the time. And they go over here for a while, and like, I really like his style for a while, but then that preacher leaves, so they say, well, I'm going to move on to the next one, and I don't like his style as well, so I'll check out the next one, and I'll check out the next one, I'll check out the next one. And, and you could really be missing out on growing with a family of God because you felt that way so strongly. And this happens. One of my first district superintendents told me this uh, as a matter of an encouragement. You know, when you come into a new church, there's, there's going to be people who had a very special, close affinity and relationship with that old pastor and and, uh, and, and that'll never be exactly the same with the new pastor. And then you'll have people who are kind of distant from the other pastor, but they came and they listened to him, and now they feel really close to the new pastor. And what you need to try to do is understand that uh, people aren't necessarily per- doing a personal preference thing where they don't like you. It just could be a style. It could be something different. Now, the exception to that would be if someone's not teaching the Bible correctly, you might need to leave the church if that's the case, but... If it's just about their personality or their presentation or their style or whatever else, uh, you have to realize God may be gifting you in a different way through that preacher, and so you need to think about that. Um, We don't want to be so selective that we just miss out on all kinds of great gifts God has for us. And and I'll give an example, too. I had um, a person that was very dramatic that I got to listen to once a week at a period of my life. And I'm not necessarily uh, someone who would ever seek being on a stage or doing anything like that. Um, and, and that's not a put-down of anyone who does. It's just not something that's in me to want to do. And so when I first started hearing this person, um, I was like, I don't like this guy. So I wish I could listen to anyone else. But, you know, this. but over time, I grew to appreciate that. Would I still do my, his style? Absolutely not. I, I would never even approach doing it that way. But I found that once God knocked me aside the head and said, learn what you can, I started to appreciate it. And so we need to be careful that we're not so selective about our teachers that we miss out what God has for us. So as we consider this, let's take some faith away from this that helps us to live 
God's word in our lives as we go forward. And to see that, as we talked about last week, even John the Baptist had moments where he needed his faith affirmed, and we do too. And then for the people that were followers of John, they needed their faith affirmed too in this passage. And Jesus said, hey, don't forget, this is the guy you went out to see. This isn't some wimp. He's a strong man of God, and he's great in the kingdom of God. But if you're in God's kingdom now, you're even more, you have more advantage than he does even. And so those are good, good things for us to kind of close on and remind ourselves of. So let's do that as we go through our week. Remind ourselves that God is so good to us, and he's put us into his kingdom, and his kingdom is here now. Don't live as though God's kingdom is still to come. He said it was here now. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. I pray that each of us will be able to be encouraged by it. And as your Holy Spirit works in our hearts, Lord, each person may have a slightly different application of this in what you're telling us to do. But may we grow together, Lord, celebrating your gifts to us and your loving kindness. In Jesus' name, amen.